You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is an episode recorded live at the Black Medicine Cafe in Edinburgh as part of PBH's Free Fringe during the Edinburgh Festival this year. Uh, This is, I mean, this was someone that I was probably one of the most nervous I get. I know I say that from time to time. But in terms of the prep that I try and do for each episode, in terms of the research so that I know what I'm talking about, so that I've got intelligent things to ask my guest, how do you possibly research John Lloyd? He's been uh, a producer for over 40 years or nearly 40 years. He's been responsible, at least in part, for Spitting Image, uh, Not the Nine O'Clock News, Blackadder, uh, all of those different Blackadder seasons. He, he co-wrote The Meaning of Lift with Douglas Adams, which, is, as you'll hear during this interview, was a huge influence on me when I was a teenager. Um, and so I probably went into it slightly juddering, but he was uh, he was an absolute gent, as, uh, as Richard Sandling is fond of saying. And um, this is the result. We Not all of these episodes are quite as long as I'd like them to be. Uh, we were sometimes a little bit pushed for time. And so if, if apologies if it's very slightly truncated. Um, but I think we got some really good stuff here. And who doesn't want to hear about hanging out with Douglas Adams and getting smashed? Um, we talk a lot about QI as well as uh, getting stuck into uh, John's own stand-up show, The Emperor of the Prawns, uh, which he brought to Edinburgh this year. So uh, if you're a fan of comedy in any way at all, there should be something here to tickle your fancy. This is John Lloyd. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for joining us, John. And for the benefit of the listener at home, I, I must insist on pointing out this is the first guest I've ever interviewed wearing a tie. <laughs> already, already some class has been led to proceedings. So that's very kind of you. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> Now, we just had a little two-second conversation outside, which I, I curtailed abruptly because I felt we were already getting into some interesting stuff. I will ask you again uh, the question I asked you just then. How are you enjoying this year's Fringe? Uh, well, it's brilliant. I love doing this. It's what I meant to do when I was uh, 21. That's why I started out to be a writer-performer, and I got sidetracked. I got off a job, a job by a man in a beard from the BBC. Yes. Uh, at 22, and I was starving, so I had to do it. And I spent 40 years in the wrong job, I suddenly discovered. So, But I, I love doing this, it's great. Except that the writing, as I was saying to you, is absolute shit. The writing it is awful. The process of sitting the down process. and writing the stuff. Once, you, once you've got the, the, the sort of show together, it's amazing. 
But the writing is, I, two weeks ago, I was going to leave the country, fly to Caracas, and change my name to Jesus, <laughs> and become a cheese herd. Uh, but I, I, I really, honestly, I thought all these decades, well, I've, because I do a lot of, used to do a lot of topical comedy, you go right to the wire, you're often right close to disaster. And I thought this is the time when finally... I'll, you know, my bluff will be called and it will be a disaster. So you still have the fear of being found out that plagues so many creative people, would you say? Uh, no, I, I don't actually have that. I know that feeling that people say, people will find out. I, I don't think that about my work. Actually, I have that about myself, but about my work, I because I've always had responsibility, because I was a producer from 22, I've got a very self-certain sense of what's the right thing to do. Okay. So, and I'm on behalf of all the writers and the comics and the actors in whatever show it is. I'm their sort of dad. I'm the well. I display, describe myself as like, you know, those triremes, Roman triremes, all those people rowing. You know, and there are all these people sweating away. And I'm the bloke with the drum on the back, going boom, boom. <laughs> Well, that's what I do for a living, really. And what quality do you think... It was David Hatch that gave you a job at the BBC, is that right, when you were 22? What quality is it that you think he saw in you that he thought, I'm going to help this person become a producer? Well, I had a suit. This is the same tie. (laughs) Actually, I'm wearing the same tie that I wore then. I did have a suit because I was so poor, I didn't have any clothes apart from this suit that was my, my university suit, you know. And he didn't notice, actually. I didn't have any shoes. I came into work one day wearing gumboots under this pinstripe suit. But I think that's what he thought. He looks like a likely BBC type. I don't know what he saw in me. I have no idea. But, I mean, that's the way the BBC used to work. They kind of looked you in the eyes and thought, that guy or that woman, they've got it, whatever it is. And I do that today. I think there's a thing when we hire people at QI, we don't really care what degree they've got because there are people very good people at QI who've never been to university. But it's about character, really. I mean, everything in life is about character, not about, you know, brains is a very small thing, actually. Might, you, uh, might it have been that he saw in your gumboots a creative solution to a problem? I kept those under the table. I don't think he saw the gumboots <laughs> at all during the interview. So I, I, you are the first producer that I've uh, had on this show, the comedian's comedian. I normally yeah. talk to stand-ups occasionally, sketch artists, writers, so forth. And um, I wonder... I was sort of trying to get into the mind of a producer. This this show is the first time I've produced anything besides writing and kind of self-directing my own stand-up work. And something that struck me from uh, from your show, Emperor of the Prawns, which is here, is that you said the main, almost the main precept was to get out of the way. Yes. Uh, I've cut that bit, actually. But, um... <laughs> I saw a very early preview. <laughs> you did. It's got a bit shorter and tighter since then. And, okay. Um, Okay, so this is... uh, I've been trying to write a novel for about 25 years. um, And the sort of... The theory of the novel, if you like, is I was great friends with Douglas Adams when we were both young, and I helped him write the first series of Hitchhiker. But because we were young, and he were both, I think, quite funny and good writers and things, but we had all the questions, as people do at that age, 25 or whatever, but none of the answers, because who knows at 25? And the idea of this book is to answer the questions that arise in Hitchhiker, but are all answered with a joke, you know? Yes. Because you go, and what's the answer? It's 42. Well, obviously, it's a very funny joke, but we all want to know what the answer is, but 42 clearly isn't it, as it says in the books. So that's the idea of the novel. And, and 
There's a great deal of stuff in it about various religions, as you know. Yes. One of which is called absenteeism. And the, the theory is that all great religions start with a single insight. You know, why not be nice to each other, for example? Or there's only one thing really, not many things. And they're all essentially the same idea. And absenteeism is this illegal religion um, of which there's only one commandment known as the polite suggestion, which is get out of the way. Yes. Okay, so get out of the way is actually a very good idea because apart from the business of being in heavy traffic, that's obviously a very good idea, uh, or, you know, get out of the way in the street and so on, but it's incredibly good philosophical advice for a director, for example, because my view of a director is the job of the director is to disappear. It's more obvious with an editor, for example, because if you notice the edits going through, clearly the editor hasn't done their job, and the whole idea of editing is to disguise the fact that it is there are many frames and to be to be fluid and the same for a director if you watch any good film director on a set he's the quietest person there or she is the people shouting the first assistant or whatever uh that's you know nobody people who don't know how film works thinks the shouty person's doing all the work but the director's the quietest person usually the most modest and and a good director is absenting him or herself in order to access this bigger thing which is the truth I really think that. And it's the same with a parent. Uh, if you want to be a good parent, be there, be nice, get out of the way. Don't advise people, don't try and cajole them, train them, just leave them be. Children are fine. If they didn't have parents, they'd all grow up great, you know? <laughs> uh, so get out of the way for parents. Harry S. Truman, the president, used to, which I think was in the show when you saw it, used to say, I found the best way to bring up children is to find out what they want to do and then advise them to do it. And that is a very good thing. Nothing I've ever told my children to do have they done. All the things that they've done well, they've done for themselves. And anyway, this, this religion has splintered into uh, a whole, as they all do, religions. Somebody comes along and they see an advantage in taking this perfectly good non-theistic religion and turning it into something advantageous. And so there's one faction is called uh, motorism. And motorists uh, have taken get out of the way literally and they, they congregate at huge drive-in cathedrals and they yell, get out of the way, at each other. And um, they worship um, JC, Jeremy Clarkson, of course, <laughs> yes. uh, who is large and smites people. <laughs> so so to, to try to get into the, this show, which is your, this is your third year doing a solo show at Edinburgh? No, my second year. Your I did second. one two years ago. I did a Museum of Curiosity last year. I see. So to get into the, the creation of this show, in part it's to do with, uh, it, it's a kind of a, a physicalization, a, perf- a performative version of the book that you're trying to write. And well, the book's a start, it's a jumping off point. I mean, okay, so when I go to work, I need to have a reason to go. I don't go to work to show off or so that people think I'm great or to win prizes or even for money, really. I go because... All the stand-up comedians listening to this have just gone, mm, switched off. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. I'm not saying I wasn't like that when I was, you know, 25, you know, when you're ambitious and so on. But um, I need a reason for why I'm doing anything, and it needs to be a reason that I can live with. The worst time I went through when I was the best paid was when I was a commercial director for 10 years, and advertising is great fun. But actually, when it goes wrong, you just feel kind of worthless because at the end of the day, you know, what's it for? Um, and so what I wanted to do with this show was I, I couldn't think what, I, what the point of it was. Somebody persuaded me to do it. Why am I doing this, you know? 
I'm, I'm not a stand-up. I, I don't need the, uh, the extra work. Um, it's going to be very hard. And I, I decided with my son, Harry, who's, who's done a bit of stand-up, that if we could, if two people on each afternoon took away one thing that they could say, that's really helped me, that would be a good thing. So that's where I started. What, how can I say things that might be valuable to people? And then afterwards comes the bit, okay, you know, being funny isn't the hard thing, actually. I mean, I know not being funny at the moment. Being funny, I've done that a lot. You know, I can tell jokes and, you know, I can think of funny things. But getting across something meaningful, and the, the show is about the meaning of life. It's about the point. What's the point? How should we behave? How can we be better? How can we have a, have we have a nicer life? And and so as and try to disguise that with a few kind of funny moments. But and I have had some brilliant experiences. For example, two neighbours of ours came along and they brought um, the the, the missus's uh, what was she sister in law something like that. And her uh, son is a schizophrenic and he's really sick. But he absolutely loved QI this guy because it takes him out of himself. And she said, "I wish my son could have seen your show because it would have really helped him." A lot of things I said. I mentioned schizophrenia in the in the show, and I met today a guy who said I'm a humanist, and he said I've got to address the Scottish Parliament about humanism next week, and I couldn't think what to say, and you've given me the clue as to what to say, and that means that means really, really a lot more than somebody saying that was really funny. There is a there's a real there's a fascinating parallel here with I don't know if you've seen the work of Tommy Tiernan the stand up yeah, comedian I saw him two nights ago so um, I saw I think I saw him two nights ago as well mm. he is he's almost arrived at a similar point having made having sort of said to himself or that's what he seemed to be saying on stage was that he's reached a point at which okay I can be funny but can I really be funny so what Tommy's trying to do is improvise a stand-up show every night. And when I saw it, and it may have been the same one, it didn't feel, it wasn't what I expected. He wasn't riffing, trying to come up with funny ideas. It was almost like he was trying to write a novel on yeah. stage. He was trying to say things he'd never seen before, and he was extemporising, kind of going, what is it? What, what is a man? What is humility? Who are we? And it's I, fascinating I was, that... You I, I really loved it. It was incredible. Because you can see, to, do, to be that brave, to go completely off script and... And it made me feel, I wanted to do something, I think this was, what I do is quite brave, because I'm not just trying to be funny, I'm, and I'm really saying what I think. I'm, I'm saying, well, I, I think this is really the truth, and if, if you take away a few of these things, they might help you. But I did consider, actually, because I was finding it so hard to write, of actually doing the same thing, of just saying, okay, I've got an hour, what do you want to talk about? Let's just, just talk about anything, because obviously... Everybody at QI, I don't know if anyone's seen our podcast, no such thing as a fish, have you come across yes, that? Yes, yes, absolutely. And they just go that each, each of the four researchers have one fact that there's the most interesting they find out that week and they tell the others, and it's great. And it's completely ad-libbed every week. And I think that, uh, rather like now, I mean, obviously I've got a script for this, it's perfectly all right, you know, it's not... Uh, but I, I loved it because it, obviously, it mishits a lot, that Tommy stuff. He's such a great guy, you know. He's such a warm, caring, nice man. Absolutely. And we're sort of, we're with him on the quest yeah. to find out whatever it is he's looking yeah. for. I felt so much more engaged listening to that show, watching that show, than I have done watching lots of other stand-up shows here yeah. that I really enjoyed. And part of that, I think, is, oh, someone is actually trying to say something real rather than just to make me laugh. Well, that's what, that's what I think is, listen, um, cut to the chase. I mean, what? 
It, somebody said uh, the whole of human culture can be seen as a way of distracting us from the fact that we're all going to die. So death gets a bit of a heavy mention in here, and it is a thing. It is the, it is the skeletal elephant in the room, isn't it, death? It's a, and how are people able to forget it? You go to a funeral and one of your best friends has died or a parent or something, and you're just so broken up and life seems so cruel and desperate and meaningless. And literally within an hour and a half, you're pissed, you've forgotten all about it, and everyone's telling jokes, and, and it keeps coming back on you. But people are able somehow to get up every morning and not realize they haven't got forever. And I find this, I find this very interesting. Why haven't we? Why do, why do things die? Why, why, why do people die? What's that all about? So is there, is there a sense with your... I, w- I want to talk about... The, let's, let's start by talking about the production of this particular show. Yes. So you're... Is it Dan Schreiber is producing it? Dan's directing it, yeah. yeah he's directing it. So does, is that a feeling from your point of view as someone who's directed and produced countless things? Now you're on the other side of it. Now you're in a sort of performative situation yourself. Are you having to make certain concessions to what he'd like to do? Is, or, or, or are you kind of anticipating that he try and disappear in the way that you would in a production role? Well, it's not really... I mean, because it's one guy standing up with a, a radio mic on, so it's not directing in that sense. I mean, there's, there's a few captions. Okay. There's one music cue or two music cues, so it's not really directing in that sense. But it was Dan and my son Harry persuaded me to do it, and I said, well, I don't have a show. What am I going to say? They said, talk to, talk to the audience about what you talk to us when you're not at work. Because okay. I talk philosophy to Harry all the time, and Dan has been an employee of QI since he was 19. I found him lingering in a remaindered bookshop in Oxford. Uh, I said, come out of the rain, young fellow. And, and um, so he's been there really since he was almost a kid. And, and, and QI is a philosophy before it was a panel game. I mean, I know it looks like the brilliant Stephen Fry in a brilliant panel game and all that, but it's actually it's a mission, it's a philosophy, it's a way of being, it's a way of looking at the world, it's a way of relating to people. And if you came to see the show being recorded or you came and looked at the office, you'd see immediately. This is not like the way most companies work. You know, if you come, journalists who come to the QR office go, this is amazing. Why have you got these? We've got comfy leather sofas and Turkish rugs and lots of books. And there are people lying on the sofas reading. And it's like being at home, really. Okay. But people work amazingly hard. Well, why wouldn't they? They love what they do. So, that, I mean, that's almost the same as like you're saying, your, your approach to bringing up children. You're letting them find things that interest them yeah. and encouraging them to then... And, and it should be the way, of course, that people are taught at school. What you, what you need to do is get the kids to be interested and they teach themselves. You know, somebody said, all you need to do to educate a, ch- a child is to teach them to read. Everything else is brainwashing. You know, it's, an awful lot can be done with absenteeism. Brothers and sisters, I want you to join me now. Stand up and pray to the absent God. <laughs> No, I mean, this, I mean, again, in the show, which I hope you're not weighing out, there's quite a lot of maths in the show, but there's also hidden a lot of philosophy. It's a lot of Zen and Hinduism tucked away underneath it because these big philosophies and faiths endure, you know, not because people are frightened of dying and they pray to God, but because they're full of extremely good ideas. And, you know, that's why philosophies last and indeed why... You can read Stoic philosophy today, you know, Marcus Aurelius or whatever like that, and it's as good today as it was then. It's timeless wisdom. So is Plato. You know, everything, in, everything Socrates said is applicable today. So when you're... 
I'm just trying to imagine you as a, a child. I've, I think I've read in a, a different interview that uh, that you gave that you were uh, frustrated with authority. Is that certainly the case, I, I think, at Cambridge, but from boarding school? Well, I think, you know, my dad was in the Navy and uh, he was a great guy, but he used to come back from running an enormous fleet of, you know, warships. And he'd say, right, um, there's threepence for the first child to find a wren's nest in that hedge. <laughs> Because he did treat us like very short naval ratings, really. Okay. Um, and he was very nice, but uh, it was the, it was like a slightly because I say so thing. And then if you went to a British prep school and public school, there's a great deal of because I say so. And if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to thrash your bottom until it bleeds, you know. And you, I, I really thrashed? hated that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've spoken to anyone before who was thrashed. That must have been horrific. Well, I went we to did, a... they, they'd got rid of the birch by that stage, but the cane. And my, <laughs> when I was 15, I did some... It was something to do with doing up the wrong number of buttons on my jacket, I think, or not wearing my scholar's gown or something like that. <laughs> he said, Lloyd, go and change into your pyjamas. I'm going to beat the backside off you. So... Do you, did you at the time just think this is how things are? I mean, do yeah, you, you do, now? Because you were, you were brainwashed from the age I went to prep school at sort of nine and a half, nearly ten sort of thing. And that's what you know. Your parents drive away in the car and you're stuck. And then this is, this is the only world you know for the next, you know, two or three months or whatever it is. I, yeah. went, to a, I went to a private school myself. I wasn't a boarder, but there were yeah. boarders there between the ages of eight and 16. I was there. And although we didn't have uh, physical punishments, we had really inventive, awful things like trying to, you've got to write a six-page essay on the inside of a ping-pong ball and things like that. Mm. That was like, or stare at a dot on the wall for four hours and things. And I, I, I found them incredibly upsetting. And I found that focus on, and I never had to do any of them. I just heard, you know, the rumours and people sort of talking about them. That inspired in me a certain kind of disaffection for authority. Do you think that you're, that, is it like a long process of trying to rebel? Like a lot of comics that I know become comics because they're angry about something or they're resisting yeah. something. Do well, you listen, think that was true? Uh, okay, yeah. so here's, here's a great paradox. Pretty much any Hollywood movie you've ever seen, you know, are they all about, is the hero the vast corporation that builds toxic <laughs> waste plants? No. It's the rebels, you know, in Star Wars, the rebels are the heroes and the, the evil empire with its hierarchies and so on. And, and the same with all the Hollywood studios that are full of people who sound and look like Darth Vader running the corporation. But, oh, they, oh it's the little guy. We're helping the little guy win. It's really odd. And, and obedience is a very, very overrated thing in my view. Um, disobedience is what we want, and you know that because it's the disobedient people who get anything done. They, they're the the great entrepreneurs and the scientists and the the people who bang on with some mad idea that won't be accepted for another hundred years, and all the Van Goghs and the the Beethovens and the obedient people. What do they do? They're civil servants, you know, shoveling paper around and making sure things are exactly the same. So, and another thing that I think is, uh, and I've thought of this for a long time. Punishment is a completely futile thing in every circumstance. There's absolutely no point in it. I was a lawyer at university and I can say there is no evidence that capital punishment has ever worked anywhere in the world to reduce the murder rate. Hmm. It doesn't. Apart from anything else, uh, murder rate is very unusually low in Britain, but something like half the murders that take place are one spouse by the other with a bread knife in the kitchen. 
you know, that is not, it doesn't matter what Capital penalty you make it, it's not no. going to stop you losing your temper with your beloved and, and sticking at one. John Lloyd then, uh, I mean, what a, he's so, so easy to talk to. He's really easy to talk to, but he also, as I think I say during this conversation, he has that sort of piercing intelligence. I felt thoroughly pierced. I felt like, a, you know, like a good, a good, a favorite teacher from school or something. You feel like you want to give of your best to try and impress them. Um, a lovely man, very, very funny and with some really, really wise things to say. Um, we'll speed right along with the second part of that interview in a second. And um, just to say thank you to everyone that came along to the Edinburgh Festival shows. Uh, we had some really, really great shows and I'm looking forward to bringing you some absolutely belting interviews with, amongst others, Jason Byrne. Uh, that was a fantastic one. Ashling B was brilliant. I think I managed to ask a total of three questions of Ashling. Um, also Ronnie Cheng, no, that's what I mean. In terms of a truncated one, Ronnie Cheng's interview was only about 43 minutes long, I'm afraid, because we had a last minute change of venue. Uh, but what we did get was very, very special indeed. And, and he's, he's another one. Someone said to me recently, the Dara O'Brien interview, you really shouldn't have released that. There was too much secret stuff there. There's something Ronnie says about how he preps his shows that I really, really want. It's only my integrity that keeps it, that keeps me from snipping it out and keeping it to myself. It's such a great idea. I'm, I'm going to do it. It's a, a preview technique that I'm going to do later next year. Um, so lots more great episodes. Jenna Friedman as well was my special guest. Uh, she's been a producer on The Daily Show and uh, written for Letterman. Um, she was the final guest uh, in the Edinburgh Festival show. So loads more great episodes coming up, being eked out over the next couple of months. I'm on holiday at the moment, so apologies for there not being uh, an episode last week. I felt uh, it was more than I could do to be recording 13 episodes on 13 consecutive nights uh, and finish up my show and do a bunch of gigs and try and get the admin done and actually bang an episode out. So I hope you'll forgive me that. Thanks for staying with me. In the same vein of uh, apology as well, I've got to apologise for not replying to many of your tweets. I'm forever asking you to tweet me at ComComPod. I do read all of them. Um, <laughs> this is not as much of a, it's not as bold a claim as we read all your emails and your letters. I read all your tweets. Oh, well done. That must take forever. And um, I very rarely get back to all of the ones that I want to because uh, I use Twitter so badly and infrequently that I often see them and go, oh, great. Next time I open Twitter, I'll reply. I'm very bad at doing that. I can only apologise. But thank you for all your support uh, and thank you for your donations during the festival. The T-shirts are available, but not technically available to you listening online just yet. Don't worry, I'll make a big song and dance when they are. And I have quite a few left to shift. I think they're a, they're a quality item, so I'll enjoy knocking them out of my virtual suitcase to you later on. Um, so thanks for your donations. If you'd like to donate to the show, uh, some people use the tried and trusted technique of sneaking up to me in the street, pressing some money into my hand and saying something nice. Or saying something cool, I should say. And probably the, the thing that people most frequently say is the words, something cool, and then they scuttle away. Thank you to everyone that did that. I, I do try and entreat everyone to a, a, a brief conversation uh, when they do that. Equally, some people just prefer the sort of... Is that nice thing if, like, if you're in a foreign city and you see a mate and you just walk past them and high-five without speaking? It's that kind of level of cool is what we're going for. So that, that's fun when we achieve that as well. And um, If you'd like to donate online, if you've been enjoying these live shows from Edinburgh or any of the previous back catalogue, we're up to, I mean, nearly 140. We're pushing 150 episodes now. We should, we should hit that uh, by the end of this year. Uh, so if you've enjoyed them, you can donate at comedianscomedian.com. Check out our new website. You can go to the specific page for each episode and you can talk about it with other Comedians Comedian fans and listeners. Listeners on the uh, the little Facebook discussion uh, box underneath, a little comments app. 
Um, and you can donate by clicking the donate button and then via PayPal, you can donate whatever you would like to give the show, whatever you'd like to uh, to pat me on the back with. Take out a virtual £20 and just pat me on the back with it over the internet. I'm going to be gatecrashing the LA Podcast Festival very soon. That's in a couple of weeks. Um, so if you'd like me to be able to keep myself in pizza and bottled water, as I believe they're into in LA, and then you can support me like that. Um, or you can equally just give us a pound a show or uh, five, ten, twenty pounds, whatever you think the show is worth to you. Uh, I use all of that money exclusively for making the show broader in its scope. And I always get to this bit of the uh, what I what I refer to as the bottling speech. Uh, I always get to this bit, and I I've never quite written the sentence. But you know what I mean. Uh, the point is, I'm taking donations and I'm using them to make the show better, to pay the people involved, and to get myself to further distant, exciting places where I can bring you back uh, interviews with people who might not necessarily be hitting the UK anytime soon. So thank you very much for all of those. Um, that's everything for now. I'm sure I've got loads and loads of gigs coming up, and very few of which have I bothered to update my gig calendar with, although you can check that out, stuartgoldsmith.co.uk if you're interested. Thank you to everyone that came to the Edinburgh show uh, an hour at Cannons Gate. Uh, I can stop advertising that now, although I am hoping to be announcing a small tour later on this year. Um, so that if you missed that show at Edinburgh, you will get the chance to see it somewhere near you soon, I hope. I had some absolutely lovely, lovely feedback on that. And it was brilliant every day to have sometimes as many as 10 or 15 people leaving the show. And as they put a little bit of cash in the bucket, they said, thanks, big fan of the podcast. So if you were one of them, sorry I didn't get to speak to you for longer, but I really appreciated you being there. It really felt to me this year like you guys were starting to come out in force to support my stand-up, and I really appreciate that. That's all for now. Let's get back to the absolutely quintessential John Law. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The reason I ask about your about that that question of your childhood and sort of unhappiness in there is because I think uh, I'm fond of asking comics whether they, as I did, I, I think now, whether they went into comedy in an attempt to heal something, so that I can then ask whether or not it worked. Oh, okay. So no, uh, the first thing is that I didn't have an unhappy childhood. I, uh, we were, we had a pretty happy family. It's jolly. It's great fun being a Navy kid because you go all over the world. You move every year, meet lots of people. I liked the life, and uh, I quite like prep school because you know when you're nine or ten, most probably not allowed to do it. But in my day, small boys used to like fighting, so we liked rugby, and, mm. and we liked when we possibly could, we'd go into the woods and you know biff each other and sort of you know 
throw throw things at each other and set fire to things and steal apples and all that kind of stuff. It was great. It's a bit embarrassing, though, when you're 16 to have your housemaster tell you to go and get undressed so that he can slake his um, lust under the guise of being disciplined yeah. on you. That's not good. And it never does any good. I mean, everything I've ever been punished for has never stopped me doing it. I wonder whether you talk to... When, when you talk about um, disobedience, there is something... Obviously, you're, you're a very intelligent man, and I wonder whether... <laughs> an almost imperceptible shake of the head there, if you're listening at home. But I wonder whether the... the, the um, and I don't just mean QI, but as you say, QI is a philosophy, and those the, the sort of the facts, the discoveries that you delight in, the unusual facts. I wonder if they're almost a way in which... Uh, it's almost like a way in which learning can be disobedient. Finding out little odd well, things uh, that, that ask, aren't part of the corporation sure. of knowledge. Ask any 13-year-old who likes QI what they think, and they'll tell you this is a revolutionary programme. It's as revolutionary as Spitting Image was to that generation because they go to school and they think, I know 13-year-olds who've read every single word of every QI book and know every programme inside out. And, and, and it is quite by accident and really set out to do that. But I met a teacher here two years ago. No, it was last year. He was, I was signing some books in a queue, and he came up and he said, I'm 24, I'm a teacher here in Edinburgh. I estimate that half of my general knowledge comes directly from QI, from the programmes. <laughs> and, and it's right. And we have created, unwittingly, a completely new form of general knowledge, which involves quantum physics and mathematics and philosophy, history, biology, zoology, whatever. And, and, and if you're paying attention... We're not any cleverer than anyone else, but we are more interested. And we, we've grasped the idea that the universe is bottomly amazing and interesting. And, and uh, <coughs> it's one way to, to, to live life usefully. But the thing is, going back to the disobedience thing, is I really, really dislike authority misused. I have a fantastically strong sense of injustice. I, I went up to university to be, I wanted to be a defense advocate, a barrister. Mm. You know, defend the weak against the strong and, and all that stuff. I've sort of, again, got sidetracked out of that, but I don't want to take shit from anybody, you know, and I don't, I don't really have to or haven't had to when you're a producer, you know. And I think that's very important, and I think that's what gives... Anyway, some of the programmes I've done are quite a lot of power, you know what I mean, because it's, um, it's speaking out for, for, for the right stuff. So when you're... It's not very funny, really, is it? But, I mean, that's the thing. Is, that's it. it doesn't it's need why to be. I went into comedy, be. because if I was a lawyer, I'd be like this wanging on all day long about, <laughs> about principles. Well, this so. shows that you have good comic instincts, because this is something that uh, a lot of comics who come on this show do. If we have a serious conversation round about this point, they'll go, this isn't very funny, is it? Because they're not yeah. used to being on stage for this long without going out and killing it with jokes. That's right. And uh, on the Museum of Curiosity, which is this Radio 4 show I do the comics are very often the least funny person on the programme, and the funny people are the archaeologists and the historians and the physicists. Why do you think that is? Is that because but the because comics are trying to? Yeah, because obviously you can't get to be a successful stand-up comic of any kind unless you are extremely brilliant person. You've got a brilliant mind, you've got an original mind, you've got a way of looking at things, which is, which is another theme of my show, which is it's the other way up, an upsy-downsy way of looking at things. But they all all have this, particularly the working class ones, have a slight chippiness that, you know, they're not really taken seriously as, mm -hmm. as minds. They are by me, but they want to talk seriously. They want to say, 
there's another side to me, you know. I don't just do knob gags. You know, I can... I, I, I know about some stuff. Okay. And so that... And what, what you're saying is that, that that's why they come on the programme, is so they can show that other side. And as a result, that gets in the way of the comedy. No, I, I think they come on... I hope they come on because they like the show and they know one of the great things about QIN Museum is if you come on, you will be shown in the best light we can possibly manage to make yes. you come across. We're not... We don't think it's funny to make somebody uh, look crap or humiliate them by an edit to show how unfunny they were. We don't ever do that. Mm -hmm. So you can trust us if you come on to, to get to be put in a good light. I think that's the reason. I think they'd probably find the content interesting. It's a really amazing thing to do that you find yourself sitting between, I don't know, Buzz Aldrin and Jimmy Carr. Yes. It's, it's the best thing. It's absolutely marvellous. Do you think, they're talking about brilliant minds, do you think there is such a thing as genius? Um, uh, yes, but um, it's probably not what you think. I mean, um, I think, again, uh, it's an odd idea, this, but I think geniuses are kind of uh, not intended to be. They're kind of ill people, if you like, because we are all trapped inside this coconut called our head with all the thoughts running around and bashing into the sides, and we are... We are disabled, not actually by our parents or our background or our height, but by our own minds. That, that Your mind is your own jailer. And ideas don't really come... Nobody knows where ideas come from, which, is, you know, if you've seen the show, it's one of the big themes, is that anybody who's any good at ideas will say they come from somewhere else. You're kind of channeling. They arrive. An idea came to me. Somebody said ideas are like fish floating past, and... A creative person, their job is to notice that the ideas... Everybody has ideas all the time. They just don't notice them. The fish go by and they don't see. And what geniuses are all doing is they... Most of us have got a sort of concrete ceiling that we can't get through, and that's the ideas are above it on the next floor up. And geniuses have got a hole in the roof with a sort of bucket down here. It's like a... To which they, they just... I mean, musicians I know just say... Howard Goodall, for example, once said to me that... Uh, when he's not thinking about anything, his, mu his head is absolutely full of music. It's just tunes going round and round. All he has to do is pluck them off the shelf and write them down. He's more music he could ever cover in his whole lifetime. Funnily enough, it doesn't generally happen like that with comedy because most comics will have the same experience I did, which is writing the stuff is absolute hell on wheels. But a comic genius I used to know very well was Peter Cook. Yes. I never saw Peter make the slightest effort. I never even saw him pick up a pencil. He just used to open his briefcase, take out half a bottle of vodka or a brandy or a, a Carlsberg special and start talking and off he would go. And it would just be absolutely unbelievably funny. And it was exactly like the sense, I used to say, he had a sort of comic aquifer under the ground. It would be like an oil man going and just putting his stanchion in the ground and out would come this gusher and all he'd have to do is run around with bowls and buckets collecting it all. He never had to try. And that's what genius is. They say it's the difference between genius and talent. So I'm certainly not a genius. A genius, it sort of arrives without effort. Mozart used to say, I've never composed a note, I only listened to God. He just yes. sat down and, and out, it just poured out of him. It's never happened to me. I wonder, so one of the, one of the quests of this uh, podcast is to try and find out, to try and find ways in which we can make a creative state 
come to us more easily. Yeah. And I was doing some digging on um, uh, the meaning of lif, yeah. which I think, thinking about it, was probably my first exposure to observational comedy. Mm. <laughs> now, for people who, I mean, I was obsessed with this book. I found it at a jumble sale at my school when I was maybe 11 years old. And for people who don't know the book, the meaning of lif was uh, co-written by uh, John and Douglas Adams. And it's uh, place names taken and given meanings as if they are little observations about life. Many of you are nodding. You know what this is. So the one that the one I don't remember the word for word definition, but the one I loved was when you uh, you got books on a shelf and the last book fits exactly into the place available for the last book. It's said to fit real nice and Kentucky. Real now, nice and Kentucky. There. <laughs> now that is so, I mean that's stay with me. And there's, there's so many more of them. I absolutely love. Um, and to me, I mean, obviously there's the 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 idea of like finding the right word for the right observation. Yeah. And then there's the observations themselves. And whilst I was re researching for this interview, I discovered that this was based on a, on a, a game that one of Douglas or school teachers yeah, Douglas had, had an English teacher. He used to play it in sort of free periods, you know. In the yes. Yeah. I'm just wondering whether the fact it came from a game it maybe puts one in a different kind of creative state. Do you know what I mean? That sort of sets up some conditions to, to stick your... your I don't know the word, but to yeah. stick your oil-finding spike into the right place. Well, I, many people said play is a higher state of uh, life than work. You know, work is drudgery, basically. Play, it doesn't mean play is easy. You know, if you want to be the best, you know, rugby um, scrum half in the world, you've got to work incredibly hard, but it's still nonetheless play. And so, and so should comedy be, obviously. And anything you like should be fun. It's not to say it's not difficult, but there is no point in doing something that's not fun, I think. Um, and oh. so that was that book. Was a, Douglas and I thought it was the best thing either of us had ever done. And, and it's still in print 35 years later, so it must have done something right. Um, and it was fantastic fun. And Douglas said he was just getting famous then, and he was trying to sell the movie of Hitchhiker in, out in Hollywood in 83. And he said, oh, Johnny, uh, I know we were meant to meet write this bloody book, but I'm... I'm in California. He said, I've gone and taken Donna Summer's beach house for the summer. You couldn't bear to come out here, could you? <laughs> I said, what, Malibu, Douglas? Oh, God, all right. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose I can. What were, the, what were the conditions? I'm often asked in interviews myself, who was, who, what guest, alive or dead, would I most like to have on the podcast? And obviously someone like Douglas would have been incredible. I, I can't imagine or measure the ways in which his outlook, as expressed through his writing affected my view of what the world is reading him as an adolescent i'm sure that's true of lots of people my age what was the what was the writing what was his writing like obviously you were i don't know if he'd sort of disappear and come up with his own stuff or what what when you were writing together what was the back and forth between you what was the sort of dynamic what were you marching around a room with one of you with a typewriter what did it look like in the room no we we used to have little three by five cards we'd i, I got i did used to do all the donkey work your dog is quite slack in that way Okay. Buy all these three or five guns and divide them up. And then while he was off shopping in Santa Monica, <laughs> I'd go through gazetteers and write the names of promising words on these little cards and okay. then give him a stack, you know. And I'd slave away all day and come up with two and he'd come back in the evening and write 14 of them, the bastard, just like that. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and did you get... Was there competition between you to, to yeah, come up with the funny one? Yeah, but actually not... It was a one-way competition. Um in the sense that, uh, you know, two of my best friends at university were Griff Rhys-Jones and Douglas Adams. It was perfectly obvious that Griff was going to be 
much a better performer. He's a brilliant straight actor, Griff, as well as a comedian. And Doug's a better writer. I thought, well, I'll get, I'll do the comedy cleaning lady job. You know, the one nobody wants. You know, the tidying up thing. So I never really was competitive with Douglas, but he was weirdly competitive with me. With me, he would sort of say, oh, "He's got a job in television now. Has he done that?" So D- Douglas, but you're a multi-millionaire and you're one of the most <laughs> famous people in the world. Oh, your wife's had a baby, has she? You did that to spite me, didn't you? <laughs> what? He did have. He was very. He was very competitive in that way. Yeah. When Oddly. you were when you were uh, working, and I'm aware that we've got so little time, that, and your your career is so uh, prolific. I sort of feel like I'm confined to kind of one question about each of a certain number of subjects. So I've tried to sort of pick my favourite one. So when you were, I'd like to ask about the changes you made to projects as a producer. Yeah. So something like not the nine o'clock news, mm. which again I found a cassette. And I remember listening to it. It's like my dad's cassette. And I think he's mm. nothing like his sense of humor. I don't know why he bought it. But I listened to it as a, as a child, as a teenager. And I remember laughing at jokes that I now realize were topical satire that I hadn't understood. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I just laughed at it because yeah. either the rhythm worked for me or I understood a bit of mm. it or I understood the gist of, I understood the interplay between the characters, if not the, the political story that was being referred to. Well, have you ever had that experience when you really enjoyed a poem at school and you just think because you like the sound of it or the, some of the images and then suddenly you're 35 and think, oh, I get it, I see what that means. Yes. I'm just rereading T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets at the moment. I can see all my notes, you know, as a, as a like, 17, 18-year-old because was, English was my subject at school. And they're all correct, but I had no idea at 17, who St. John of the Cross was, for example, who, who appears in there. I do know now, and I know quite a lot about him, you know. So the, the hinterland has arrived, and so now the Four Quartets, it, it was an even more amazing set of poems than it was when I was a teenager. But this is slightly, again, what I'm trying to get at this thing about the truth is sort of permanent, and, and, and creativity is the business of discovering. discovering. In the book, there's a academic discipline called archaeology, which is they, uh, they've worked out that nobody ever creates anything. They simply discover it. So that what, what an archaeologist is, is it, that's what they call creative people. You go into the desert of dullness, as it were, and, and with your spade and your brush, and you, you dig at promising outcrops, and you uncover this stone lion, and there, you know, then you brush it away, and there, my God, look, it's a temple. That, you didn't make that. The temple was already there. You've just found it. And I think when you, if you, in terms of what you're trying to do as uh, for comedians, is not. It, it's obviously a very egotistical thing in one way, being a comic. I mean, it's an incredibly arrogant and mad thing to want to stand up and try and make people laugh. But the way to get there is oddly is to absent yourself. Going back to the beginning, because this is my theory, which I think is true. A great artist, a painter, a musician. Sculptor, architect, um, comedian. You cannot do good work when the ego's present. You know, and that because the ego gets in the way. The little man in the coconut stops you accessing the bigger thing. Um, I mean, you could be a complete shit once you come off set or out of the studio, as many great artists were. But when, when Picasso's painting, Picasso is not there. There's something else operating the brush. So do you, did you have any kind of um, 
strategies to try and get yourself into that state or to try and get the artists that you are working with, the writers, the performers? Well, I think it's very good to work in teams for a start. Okay, so I've never take credit for what I do. The producer is, you know, just the person who's trying to help all the other people be the best they can be. So teams is great because it always, you know, many heads are better than one. Um, And... And, you know, just not not taking credit is a really good thing. I can never remember who wrote what line in Blackadder. And the others, some of the actors, they're still arguing <laughs> who wrote life is a twisty turny thing. You twist and turn Blackadder like a twisty turny thing. <laughs> and there's still two or three people who all claim to have written, like, who cares who wrote it? We wrote it. The Blackadder team wrote it. That's enough, isn't it? Um, sorry, what was your question? Oh, just about uh, <laughs> about strategies to get oneself over a, a creative. I mean, okay. Even well, in... this is what I think. You cannot legislate for genius. Okay, the only thing you can do is t- turn up and do your best every day, and that's very good advice to children. Just do your best. That's all. Yeah, that's that's all I care about with my kids. You can't do better than that, can you? Um, and the only thing you can really take credit for is the effort so just going on doggedly doing it again and again and eventually you will get better everything's practice really that's the first thing don't give up and most people i think that's the only reason that i'm still here making programs and you've heard of more people have heard of me as a producer christ knows why but because i'm more dogged i'm more stubborn than people i don't like to fail i don't like to come last and i go on long after everyone has said this is never going to work john this puppety thing they're ugly, then the scripts aren't funny and the voices aren't right. It's never going to work. You're mad. But I go on and on and on, you know, can't give up. And there you are. And then uh, suddenly I'm a fucking comedy legend or some rubbish. <laughs> There's nothing to do with that. It's just simply going on and on. And definitely that is a thing most people give up much too soon. And but you certainly have that in stand-up comedy. The people who, who last are the people who don't give up and who've got very high standards. Uh, and and they're not bullshitting, and they they know the difference, and not go out there and think I'm really good when they're not. You've got to have a very self-critical sense, you know. How do you marry those two things of of a good self-critical sense and an unshaking belief in yourself? Because I think certainly as a comic, I know people who are, and there there'll be a few within the say the London circuit, people who are known for being perennial open spots, who've been going for years yeah. and years and years can't get paid for a gig or you know, subsist on one or two, you know, have a day job, and people who, who clearly believe in themselves and yet arguably could believe in themselves a bit less. Yeah, somebody said... How, um, how do you know that you're not one of them? That's what somebody, I mean, you know, that the one, the one isn't one of them. Who said that um, be yourself is the worst advice you can give some people, isn't it, you know? Um, <laughs> but I would say, again, with the absenteeism thing certainly when I'm doing the show at the moment, I definitely have the sense when I'm doing it well, it's, I'm kind of surfing, I'm not really doing it, my lips are going up and down, but you're in touch with the, the people out there in a way, and it's a kind of service, it's not really, I definitely think that's a good advice, is stop thinking about yourself, people sitting in the wings going, smoking too many cigarettes, absolutely terrified, what are you terrified of? How do you, they've paid, what do you think they feel like? You know, you should go out and think about them. And it's good advice in any circumstances. Think much more about everybody else than about yourself and you won't go wrong. And so when you're doing creative work, when you're writing and so on, look, it's going to come or it's not going to come. You can only take credit for turning up and sitting down. You know, Douglas used to say, people say, where do you get your ideas? And he said, I sit down and stare at a piece of paper until my head bleeds. (laughs) 
And, and he found ideas much more difficult than I do, really, d- despite what I'm saying about meaning of life. He found it absolute hell, hell. And and I think, and because Douglas was, although he had wonderful qualities and a very close friend, he was quite, he never got to the point where he really quite developed, escaped from that, that ego problem, which is the seesaw that many creative people, there was a bit in the show that I cut out saying, it's about, What's the universe got against originality, you know? Why is it so hard to do things well? And I said that these obstacles to getting stuff done are like speed bumps on a road, you know? They're there to, you know, slow you down and make it a little bit harder to get from one place to the other. And creative people make a fantastic fuss about them. They go, oh, my God, look at the height of that one. It must be, oh, no, it's three and a half inches tall. I can't believe it. And you go over the speed bump. And you've forgotten it, haven't you? Don't even look at it in the wing mirror. You're going, yes, I got over that one. Fuck, it's great. Look how great I am. I'm amazing. I got over the speed bump all on my own. <laughs> and it's a bit like that. You know, people go, Douglas is very up and down in that way. He's incredibly depressed and dispirited. And then when he'd written the book, he was up like a kite and he sort of slightly believed his own myth a bit. And then come the next year, I had to write another book. And he suddenly remembered, oh, no. I'm a complete ass. I forgot. I'm, <laughs> oh, I've got to deal with this again. Let's, let's just stay with your, your show, your current show for the moment. You've mentioned a couple of times things that have been cut out. Yeah. On what basis are you editing your show? Why, are you cutting things out thinking, I believe in this, but this will be better for the book? Or I believe in this and it's... You know, what, what, are those, what are those decisions? I love asking comics what bits they, they took out of this show and why. Um, well, some things, because if you persistently try something, even if you think it's funny and people don't laugh, it's sort of pointless. If it's just a funny thing that's like a way station, it's between two bits of science or something, it's there to lighten the tone and it makes it worse. There's no point in having that. And then there's flow, trying to get from one place to the other. So, And again, I'm looking at this thing. I said two weeks ago I did not have a script and I read the, the draft to my wife to total silence and I thought... <laughs> <laughs> I, I really am going to have to leave the country. And now I look at this thing, you know, I've got it in my pocket now, but I did have. And it looks like, you think, this is, I'm looking at it like it's nothing to do with me. I think, this is really neat. Look, it goes from there to there. And then this, wait a minute, I wrote this. This is ridiculous. Well, but it's, it's, it's got a life of its own now. It feels real. It feels, I I'm, bet it's better than when you came. And, um, and there are other things that people say, okay, I don't understand that bit. Um, and if three people say that to me, I'm not going to bang on about it. Or, and I definitely one thing, there's too many ideas and it's very dense. People come out and they feel small or they start shaking. They, don't, they find it too much to grasp. So I just pare it down, have less ideas and make more of them. Okay. Have less ideas and make more of them. Yes, I think that reminds fewer me... Ideas. Fewer ideas. Fewer ideas. Well, well done. <laughs> Stephen Fry is behind the curtain. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, on the, I, as you said earlier, you're kind of regarded, and I know you're sort of saying it with your tongue in your cheek. You're regarded people who think you're a comedy genius, or they know your name more so than other producers. Yeah. And mentioning Stephen Fry there, who's obviously well known for being a national treasure, yeah. And I think with good with good reason, he's yeah. produced a huge output, loved by mm. millions. Um, are there downsides to feeling that you are sort of part of comedy royalty? Does it? Does it? Do you still want to challenge yourself, or is there a temptation to to go? Look, I've done the work now. I, I think I'm fantastically fortunate that I'm 
the age I am and I'm not bored by what I do and it's still it's still equally hard but it's just a it's just such an interesting job and it's more interesting in many ways than it was even five years ago because this this side to things <laughs> when I did started two years ago and I said I rang Bill Bailey I said you know Bill you got any tips and he said it's a wise head he said how many um how many shows are you doing? Thinking I'd probably say two or something. He said, well, I'm doing the whole, the whole fringe. He said, what, every day? <laughs> every day? He said, you've got to remember to sleep properly and eat and everything. I said, Bill, it's only an hour a day. That's not a job, is it? And I think if you've, you know, my, my life is, as a producer, often, you know, getting up at seven in a panic, working all the way through lunch, working till two in the morning and at the weekends, just to get it done, just to make it look completely effortless. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's all peddling behind the background so that stars can turn up and make it look easy, you know? Is that ever exasperating to, to see stars turn up and make it look easy when you've put that work in? And they, no, and they it isn't. The credit on the whole, n- not if they behave well. I mean, if, if, if uh, talent is, is rude to the staff or, uh, you know, slack or drinks too much, that can be a pain in the ass. That's not right, because they're all obviously paid more than we are. But fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. And no, I don't mind. I liked, I really liked the sort of Calvinist, self-effacing thing that a producer has. Nobody thanks you. You uh, always last to leave the office. You have more stress, more responsibility than anybody else. And I like the slightly the feeling that nobody knows what I've done and I kind of quite like that and the, but I know I know mm. what I've done and I don't care what they think and that's another principle of mine is you shouldn't ever worry what other people think you do what, do what you know to be right and that's very self-sustaining to think you know and maybe it sounds complacent I don't know but uh, uh, but the upside of this stuff is I didn't I didn't think I missed being thanked. But my goodness, it is nice to be thanked, and which I get every day now. Mm. You know, people come out of the show and they go, that was really great, thank you so much. Or people often stop me in the street and say, thank you so much for making me laugh for the last 35 years or something. It's really nice. And there's no downside to that. And I happen to like people. I mean, I don't, you know, I really genuinely like people of all kinds. I think it's what makes me good at my job because I'm thinking, of, uh, Martin Scorsese said when he makes a movie... He is the audience. That's the audience he's playing at, is himself. And I feel exactly like that. I'd never only found that out last year. That's what he thinks. Because I'm, I'm, it's a, oddly, the greatest respect you can pay to the audience is you're doing what you like. Because you're saying, you're like me. I love this. I think you'll like it. It's one of the terrible things about modern television and culture. And you don't get that anymore. Commissioners never say, that's a fantastic idea. We should do it. Mm. Oh, that's a terrible idea. What a rotten idea. Why have you come in here with that pile of crap? Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Has it got any baking in it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Wait. Do they eat kangaroo testicles? Well, how's it going to work then? If it hasn't got any baking or kangaroo testicles, how will it work? There's never been a programme like that before. What are your... What are your uh... 
What are your beacons of hope amongst other work that's being produced at the moment? What sort of shows are you thinking, great, they are, people are, producers are making the right decisions, commissioners are making the right decisions? Well, I think you've got to look at American drama, haven't you? That's, and comedy, actually. I mean, you know, I know they're all getting a bit old now, but Family Guy is a brilliant show. The Simpsons was brilliant for a long time. But, you know, all those big hitters, House of Cards, Breaking Bad is a masterwork, The Wire... Um, uh, Game of Thrones I haven't seen, but I'm, I'm going to get round to it. And it's what, what they've done is, particularly AMC and Netflix, they've said they've realised the only way to get anything done well is to find good people and let them do it. That's because the good producers, directors, writers, actors, they all want to succeed more than life itself. Mm. And interfering and chipping away at things and saying, oh, no, don't do that, don't do that. You'll never have a good idea. And I think... Uh, my beacon of hope is that the market is... I believe in the market. I believe, you know, I'm a public service broadcaster. I believe that that people will speak with their feet and they will, you know, they vote for quality, ultimately. Uh, before we wrap up, I've got one other area I'd particularly like to focus on, which I mentioned at the very beginning, which is... It's a, a, a favourite thing of mine to do, only because of my own uh, disastrous mental problems, is to Have ask you people... Uh, yes, I suffer a lot from anxiety. I've done for, okay. for lots of years, and occasionally depression, although not to, not to a clinical extent. But mm. I know you've spoken before about having, like, a s- suddenly falling into, a snapping overnight into a very long depression. Yeah, but I had a lot of... When I was younger, I used to get depressed a lot, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm singing from the same page or whatever. Sure. And I wondered yeah. if you're happy talking about it. Yeah. Um, just the difference between, I suppose, your, your, you as a creative person, you as a producer, you as an, an artist, we're hearing a lot about, I mean, you seem incredibly wise. Do you see what I mean? You do, you do. You must know that you do. Everywhere, hanging on your every word, because you're saying, you're like, <laughs> you, you have a quality which I think, uh, I'm sure you would agree, you have a quality whereby people are like, you're sort of like a favourite teacher because you're saying things that we agree with and we go, yeah, absolutely, we should all get out of our own way more and we should listen more and we should pay more attention and we should not trip ourselves up. Those sorts of qualities. But, I mean, the reason... I'm only saying things that you already know, aren't I? I mean, most of the things chime with you, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Because wisdom is simple and clear and truthful and it's, it's a term that's been there an awfully long time and I... You know, these are just things I've picked up along the way. But people who we don't think of as wise are probably people who either haven't realised those lessons or are too busy showing off that they're wise. Do yeah. you see what I mean? So there is there's wisdom in simplicity, maybe, is what I'm saying. So These are not absenteeists, Stuart. <laughs> These are people who are in the way and must be killed. Yes, perfect. Let's, we'll start. We'll start tonight. Um, with, uh, but what I wanted to talk about was the difference between that kind of calmness and simplicity and happiness working that happiness and creativity and the unhappiness that you were feeling when you were suffering from depression and were you not were you not able to wisdom yourself out of it do you see what i mean Uh, well uh, i mean i I don't think i think very few people are born wise i think you have to if uh and it's an interesting question because wisdom and intelligence are two completely different things. You know, intelligent, lots of bad people are intelligent. It's not possible to be wise and bad. So if you're saying I'm wise, you're saying I'm basically, you know, one of the goodies, as it were. As it were. I'm not you, claiming that like I am. You seem like a phenomenally good egg, John. Well, 
But the thing is, it's just there's simple things. You know, I'm not bullshitting you. I'm telling you what I think. Uh, I'm not frightened to say what I think, and I sort of know who I am. And I, uh, yeah, and then. 20 years ago, if somebody told me I was a comedy anything genius, I'd have cringed. I'd be, oh, no, I'm not. Eh. I don't know. You said it. I don't know. Am I? It's, who cares? It's not, not really interesting. But um, it's one of the things I do notice about doing the show is uh, things to me that are perfectly obvious in the show that I've been talking about to my kids for 15 years. People go, that's a brilliant idea. I've never heard that before. For example, as you know, there's a thing called the inner monkey in the show, yes. which is... The idea that what we think is us thinking is actually this puppeteer in our heads saying, you shouldn't put up with that shit. What's he say to you? He's a boring worker, is he? He's and when you think about it, you hear, most of us hear that voice in our head just as a schizophrenic or Joan of Arc did. It's, but we think that's us thinking. And the ancient Greeks used to call this the voice of the god at the time that Homer wrote the Iliad. No Greek warrior took responsibility for their own actions because they heard the god in their head. The god said, kill him! To the left! You know, or we must burn the town. They, they just thought, well, I'm just acting as a... I'm just a puppet. Isn't that extraordinary that they thought that? And we think that's us. No, it isn't us. So when... And this is, but my, my thesis is that there's two yous, okay? That's a very good joke. The, the scarce version of Silence of the Lambs. Shut up, yous. There are two yous. There's, and this is very ancient philosophy. There's the little you, the little self, the ego, and there's the big you, and the big you is connected to everybody. And the little you is the thing you have to get out of the way. That's the thing you have to absent yourself from, and that's the one that causes all the trouble. That's the one that gets depressed and anxious and angry and. Uh, and competitive and selfish and all that sort of thing. And the quicker you realise that this is not you suffering, it's something that's making you suffer. So you've got to turn around and and deal with it and access this bigger thing, um, which is you can relax about. I mean, I just kind of... I don't know what's happened about that that I don't get. I go up in front of people. I'm not nervous here. I, I didn't come here thinking, Christ, what if I'm shit? I don't care. I'm just going to say what I think, you know. It's uh, because I have, I have practiced what I preach. I've absented myself, you know. I've just turned up, and I'm not going to go home after and say, I wish I'd been a lot funnier. I could, have, I could have started with that really good joke about the crocodile, and then they would have thought me much better than I than so what, did. So what does it look like? What, so what does it sound like? What is the little you saying when you were in your depressed state? Uh, well, you know... How could these bastards do this to me? After all, I've given them a shit. My wife's a maniac. You know, my children are intolerable. The people I work with are all thieves and liars, and I'm great. And I don't deserve this because I'm one of the good people. I'm really, really <coughs> nice, and I, it's not fair. I met my mammy. I met my mammy now. I've went through this for a few for a while, and I had this one of the things that happened to me. I had this extraordinary epiphany. I, I, as it were. I opened the manhole cover at the bottom of my soul and I looked inside and I uh, shut it. I could hear the clang to this day. I looked in and I saw what I was really like. I saw I was so angry. I was so selfish. I was sort of miserable the whole time. I couldn't be asked to be cheerful. I was, you know, I was obsessed about my own success. Um, 
I was absolutely horrified, Stuart. I was horrified. And I thought, that's it. No, no, you know, I can drop all this shit about me being one of the good guys because I don't hit people or steal. That's, that's what counts. You're a mess. You need to do something about this. And, what did and I couldn't look in it for ages because I thought, oh, my God. So is that, and then what did, was it a process of therapy that enabled you to look in it and cope with it? No, no, or is it I just did a it case all of own, never. For most, most of the time. You I invented did it, your I, own I, therapy. I, had, I did go and see a guy for six months once, but um, not, not for any uh, therapeutic reason, as it happens. But my dentist said, You're grinding your teeth at night, so every time I fix them, you grind them down again, and you need to go and see something, whatever it is that's eating you, literally, mm. your teeth are eating <laughs> you. You need to go and see, and he said, go and see the guy who saved my marriage. I said, I didn't know you had a terrible marriage. He said, yeah, tell me about it. But anyway, it's all right now. But um, I was intermittently depressed, and I sometimes used to wake up in the morning, oh, God, what's the point, and all that kind of thing. And then it really hit me like a sack of potatoes in my, uh, in my um, early 40s. And I, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I was absolutely miserable for three years, and... and pretty ropey for the next seven but i'm fine now. thank you for asking <laughs> <laughs> but it is my view that unless you are so clinically depressed that you simply can't operate when you're, you're you're literally catatonic that depression is essentially a perfectly reasonable philosophical view of the world and it is a philosophical not a physiological problem i used to think it was chemical but I worked out when I was very depressed that two things would get me out of it without fail, which is one is to be interested in something or someone else, and the other is to go for a very long walk. And I've got a friend who's a child psychiatrist in, in Tennessee. His solution to depression is to make you stay up, stay up two nights in a row. And if you're, not, if you're not cheered up by then, he makes you stay up another night, and then you're fine. <laughs> okay. In the 1920s, they used to cure depression by sitting the depressed person on a chair and pushing a table against them up against the wall until they cheered up. <laughs> I promise you, it works just as well as drugs because drugs don't cure depression. They may stabilise yes. panic attacks and suicide and all that kind of stuff, but they don't cure anything. It's just, you just keep... Depression is a logical way of looking at the world, but it is an ineffective one you're much better to say an equally good way of looking at the world is to be cheerful. Because the more cheerful you are, the more cheerful people you meet. And actually, you know, blow me down. I've been depressed for, for weeks because everywhere I go, there are smiling people laughing and saying, how nice to see you, how lovely. So well, that's also a very good way of looking at the world. And it's an effective way. It's an optimal way. Depression is a fucking waste of your life, you know. So, and actually, only you can do something about it. Thank you. That was an excellent answer. You're, you really are very wise. No, 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 I'm just saying it's happened to me. I, I can say this. I wouldn't dream of making, uh, you know, remarks about psychosis or, um, uh, I don't know, any number of mental illnesses or about disabledness or whatever. It's, that would be impertinent. But since I think I've had it as bad as, you know, as you can, I think that's... And I think it's good advice. Get out. Get out of your head and get out of your house and help somebody else. You'll feel a lot better for it. Thank you, John. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have probably just got time for one question. How have you dealt with criticism of your work? Well, I think uh, it is much more pain... Are you a performer? No, OK. It's much more painful if you're a performer because you put so much of yourself into it. And 
I remember getting very hurt by a Guardian review two years ago, which said, this bloke's not a stand-up, but he's going to go down a storm at any Rotary Club, which I thought... <laughs> <laughs> if, you is... can re- if you can remember your negative reviews yeah. word for word, you are a stand-up inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, as a producer, I... Look, I, you... If you, you'll never be any good as a producer unless you have an objective standard. My standard is an iron thing. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I know your, your job is to, is to do the best you can and say, that wasn't good enough. Next week we'll do that better. This was really good. This is what we're aiming for. You can't rock that. That's concrete in me. And it's because I've been doing it for 40 years. I'm absolutely sure. I know this is good. And it's why I don't, for my show... I didn't go out and try it out in five-minute bits all over the country for a year and a half. I sat down and wrote it in two days. And it was, you know, probably 75% there because it's just that experience. You know, I know, it's like a... As a carpenter, I can tell you that table's not upright. I don't have to get my measure out to tell you it's not right, you know. So when I get bad reviews, it's either... They're right, it was shit last week, or, you know, they're right, it was quite good, or they're wrong. It was a very good show last week. So, again, it's the same thing. You, you need to develop a sense of authenticity and integrity and stick to your guns, you know, not be... This is the worst thing about the world, is everybody's worrying what somebody else thinks. You know, the BBC now is a quivering jelly of funk about, my God, the Daily Mail have said something about us again. What are we going to do? Who gives a shit what they think, you know? You should... It's, you should do what you know to be right. That's the thing. And finding out what you love and doing it properly. And actually it goes away, you know, that, that, because you should be able to take a bad view. And that's either say, like, like taking criticism. Either I hear what you say, but A, I didn't do that, and that's not true, and I'm cool about that. You're wrong. Or I hear what you say, you're right. I apologise. That was my fault. I'm sorry. You know, this is equanimity, and this is what true enlightenment is, is somebody who can, no matter what the situation, treat things equally with a, with a, a reasonable cheerfulness. You're right, I agree, I'm sorry. Or, no, you're wrong. And that's what we should do about criticism, but we don't. We go around thinking, oh, my God, not only am I terribly hurt, oh, my feelings have been hurt. Uh, but also, what will other people think? What if they read this review? They, they might agree with this person. What about, well... My life's ruined. No, it isn't at all. <coughs> so, I don't know. I think it's, the thing, it's a thing that's developing, partly as a result of doing the show, that it's sort of all one thing. There's one... I mean, I'm, 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 I think, really, we do need another religion. I mean, we really need a religion that is uh, decent and logical and uh, encompasses science and is somebody you can all sign up to as, you know, doesn't involve any peculiar costumes and, and so forth. <laughs> but has four or five things that you can say, no, no, this is, this is what we do in this, in this faith. And, um, come and sign up later, ladies and gentlemen, and <laughs> I shall be behind the, uh, behind the curtain in the vicarage. <laughs> On that note, we must leave it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in, in thanking Mr John Lloyd. <laughs> So that was John, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and absolutely, what a, uh, 
I don't know what to say about John Lloyd. What a lovely man. What a lovely, wise, savvy, funny man. So thank you very much to him for coming along. Thanks to everyone that came along to see that episode live. And thanks, of course, to Nathan Wood, my co-producer on the show, uh, for putting this all together whilst I'm on holiday in Dorset, lying in a field and sobbing gently (laughs) as they come down for the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Next week... Who will it be? Who will it be? It might be Tommy Tiernan. Oh, my God. I think it's going to be Tommy Tiernan next week. It's just an absolute... I don't even know. I I was going to say belter again. I've used the word belter twice uh, on this episode already. It's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. He's wise. He's funny. He's fiercely intelligent. And he's really challenging himself. Tommy uh, Tiernan, if you don't know, one of the biggest comics in Ireland. Huge global reputation. Um, Not as big in the UK as he is at home. But... um, He's just, he's like an archetypal comedy trickster spirit. He's, uh, as, as, as you'll hear in the episode, I, I sort of challenge him on some of those things. Um, and also at Edinburgh, he was alternating a regular stand-up show with an hour of improvising an hour of stand-up every night. And we'll talk in depth about that next week. So stay tuned. I'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening. Donations to comedianscomedian.com. Hit the PayPal button and you can uh, email me info at comedianscomedian.com or, of course, follow me on Twitter at comcompod uh, and do all of those things. Back to the holiday. Thanks, gang. Speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.